and for just the, how you showed us some things that I think we kind of knew a little bit, but really um, brought to our mind even more, God. And now as we, so as we jump into our word, as people, God, that do want to know you, God, we truly desire, God, to know what this abundant life that you talk about is all about, how to experience. So as we look into your word, God, may we be challenged and encouraged today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, first of all, I want to kind of give you a, prepare you a little bit, going to try to do things, try just come trying something out this morning, do something a little bit uh, different. I'm going to preach shorter, so only an hour and a half. I'm kidding. So I'm going to preach. <laughs> I could do it, believe me. Um, I'm going to just teach for about, uh, I don't know, we'll see. It's not going to be very, super long. But then uh, what I'm going to do is we're going to open it up, hopefully the last 10 minutes, open it up to you. I have some questions for you to let's kind of do some little dialogue. We're small enough of a church, we can do this. We can try new things, we can dialogue. And so just be thinking about, so be prepared. You don't have to. If you, uh, also, if you'll notice, we have the little... Uh, pamphlets in the little fill out if you want to fill in the blanks as I go along. Uh, uh, if there's not enough for you, uh, Elias right there has a few. You can just raise your hand and he will get you one or a pen, whatever you need. So if you want to follow along that way, that's, uh, that's totally fine. Well, many of you, if you've been in church for very long, I would imagine you've probably either seen or heard uh, this illustration before, this, the illustration of a monkey trap. Now, I found a, found a picture. That's the best one I could find. Of a, how many, have you ever heard the illustration? Okay, a couple of you had. Okay, a couple. Um, but here's how it works. Here's how the monkey trap works. Uh, monkey hunters will get a coconut, and they'll drill a hole in the coconut, just about the size so a little monkey can get his hand in there. They'll drill a hole, they'll hollow out the coconut, and what they'll do is they'll put a little piece of fruit then into the coconut, and then what they'll do is they'll attach the coconut, one end of the co a rope or a thing, or as you see, like some kind of chain, to the coconut, and another usually to a tree branch. In this case, in the picture, as you can see, it's to like a, a railing of some, of some kind. So soon, uh, these curious monkeys will come along, and they'll slip their hand through that hole to grab the piece of fruit. Now, here's the problem. Well, at least the problem for the monkeys. The problem for the monkey is they put such a high value on what they have just grabbed that the monkeys will actually refuse to let, let go of that thing, and, or that piece of fruit, in order to get their fist out. So they've made a fist now, and they can't get their hand out of that hole. I mean, you look on the internet, this is, there's pictures everywhere and stories everywhere of, of how they do this. I even saw one where they were, did it in a, a hole with um, ants and different things like that. The monkey got their hand and they just couldn't, couldn't get it out. Even, check this out, even when a hunter, the hunter comes along, he'll see the monkey, the monkey will be there trying to get his hand out. Even then, the monkey will still not let go. I mean, even though its very life is in danger, the monkey will refuse to, to surrender what it believes is so valuable to him. Now, as followers of Jesus, this is number one on your little sheet there. As followers of Jesus, I believe that we too have a problem with letting go of what is so valuable to us which is most oftentimes the very thing hindering us from experiencing the abundant life that Jesus promises. 
I think we have that same kind of, we can put ourselves in that same category as that monkey. I'm going to keep holding on to that thing. But it's keeping us from experiencing that abundant light. This morning, what we're going to look like, look, look at this morning, we're going to look at one person's willingness to surrender what is valuable to them to Jesus. Okay, and then what we're going to see is how he responds to that person, what he has to say about that person who does this. Well, if you remember in the last um, few weeks, uh, in the last few uh, sermons that I've given, Jesus has been, fin- he's been talking about portraying himself as the king. Remember that? Um, He's talking about how he's going to be the king, he's going to be on the throne, um, and he's, he's, he's finished doing that, and he's telling us that he's going to reign in glory. Yet, here's the thing, as wonderful as all that has been that we just saw, what we're going to see from here on out is we're going to see Jesus start to go undergo rejection and suffering really in order to fulfill his father's plan. Today's passage will be in Matthew chapter 26. And really what this chapter does now, you got to put it in your mind, this really sets the scene for what we'll be looking at in the next handful of sermons, which really is commonly referred to as the, the passion narrative, okay? It's really the account of Jesus's suffering and his death. So this is, op- this is kind of painting, getting the scene ready for all that, okay? And all of this is going to take place. All this passion week, this passion narrative takes place during and in the context of the Passover, which was really the most enthusiastically observed of all the Jewish festivals of its time. Is it still probably the most, I don't know, is it, Paul, you're looking at me like, you would know better, man. You're a resident Jew here. Come on, tell me, tell me. Uh, but it is. I mean, everybody knows about Passover. We've heard about Passover. We've heard about Seder meals, and I've gone to his house, even had a Seder meal, all these things. But back then, this was huge. Passover was huge. At that time, this is when all Jewish men especially were to come all over the Mediterranean world, were to come to Jerusalem. And the, the population of Jerusalem, they say, would swell to like five times. It would just get packed and massive, Okay. Specifically, this Passover, just so, just so we know what's going on here. Specifically, the Passover was um, a week-long celebration of the final plague. Remember this in the movie, The Ten Commandments, or what you've read before? It was a, f- a celebration of the final plague during Israel's captivity and on the Egyptians. Uh, where they, Remember, the angel of the Lord passed over all the homes, all the homes of the Israelites who had uh, put blood of a lamb onto their doorposts posts, but it killed all the firstborn of the Egyptians. Okay? That's what this is about. It's also, it's also a celebration of Israel's exodus out of Egypt and their, and their freedom from slavery. So you can imagine, this is a huge thing for them. That's why Israel just got so packed. So this is setting the scene. Okay, this is setting the scene for all this. That's where number two comes in here. Now, in setting the scene for the passion narrative to come, today's passion is we're going to take a look at three intriguing events, okay? Three intriguing events. We're going to look at initial plot to kill, a costly expression of love, and a betrayal, okay? Those three things are in this, and this is all what sets up what's coming in the next 
handful of Sundays we'll look at, okay? So let's start by looking at this plot to kill, okay? It's the initial plot by the religious leaders to kill Jesus, okay? Let's start by looking at verses 1 and 2 in chapter 26. Words will be up on the screen for you if you don't have a Bible, okay? It says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered to be up to be crucified. See, so we see here that Jesus is making this major transition from teaching the importance of being ready for his second coming, which we've been looking at in the past chunk of time here, and now he's going to start foretelling what's to come. Here's what's going to happen to me. Okay, that's what he wants his disciples to know. And he begins by reminding his disciples that, okay, you guys know, in two days the Passover is coming. They're all like, yeah, yeah, we know that. Of course, we've been celebrating it every year. But then he tells them, but during that time, he will be taken away and he will be crucified. That's what's going to happen. And number three on your notes here, what this tells us is Jesus is not going to be taken by surprise by what happens to him. He will, he will willingly accept his fate, knowing that it's all part of a divine plan. Jesus, this is no shock to him. He knows what's coming. And he wants his disciples to know what's coming. I'm sure they're not understanding quite under... What? So he's saying, this is what's coming. I know it. It's part of my father's plan. This is what's going to go down. Okay? Now look at how he's this actual plot to kill him. Look how it begins to unfold. Look at verses 3 through 5. He says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Okay, so we see here that uh, the religious bigwigs of the day, they get together, and they get together in this informal uh, meeting at the high priest's palace for this kind of this ad hoc planning meeting in order to figure out, okay, how are we going to do this? They've made up their mind. How are we going to arrest Jesus, and how are we going to kill him? I love the word they use there. They're going to do it by what? Stealth. So they're, they're going to do this some way behind the scenes, some way underhanded. You see, they didn't want to cause this big uproar. The last thing the religious leaders wanted was this big uproar from the crowds who might be partial to Jesus. You know, they wanted to, they're, they're trying to figure out a way to do this without people noticing. How can we do that when our city has swelled to five times its normal size? How can we do this? This is not a good time. So they decide to kind of table the issue. They decide, okay, we're going to wait. We're just going to wait maybe when it's over, okay? Yet interesting what we're going to see in a bit here, in a few minutes, is an unexpected opportunity that will arise that will allow the time for their plan to take place much sooner than they anticipated. We're going to see that in a minute. But first, Matthew records this very intriguing and very interesting story. It's this costly expression of love. And this, and this absolutely horrifies his followers, okay? His disciples are not happy with us. So check this out. Verses 6 through 9. It says, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster, alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. 
Now, if you remember back about three or four months ago, we had looked at the idea that Bethany was this place kind of like a home base for Jesus. This is where he would go, and when he did a lot of his ministry, it was kind of where he stayed, then he'd go out, then, he'd, then he would come back again. So here's, here's the scene, okay? We got the scene that Jesus is reclining at this table, probably eating dinner, and he's sitting at his house of his friend, Simon the leper. How, how's that for a nickname? What is up with what is up with obviously this guy had been cleansed he obviously been a leper at one point but uh now he's been cleansed of his leprosy but I don't know somehow the nickname stuck I mean how would that how would that be you know good to see you Jeremiah at the uh, chicken pock I don't know I mean I mean how weird how weird would that be but that's 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 what uh, identifies this guy so now along comes this unidentified woman and they probably scholars and other people probably think it's probably it could be Mary the sister of Martha Martha and Lazarus and what she does she comes along and she breaks open this alabaster jar which likely it's got this super expensive, uh, perfumed, exotic, cosmetic oil, and she just pours it on Jesus' head. Can you just imagine? I mean, think about it. You're at a meal. Woman comes in, and if this, if this, if this is Mary, she was a prostitute back in the day. Now, she comes in, all this oil. On his head. Now it wasn't. A, it wasn't like it was uncustom. You know, anointing people with oil and putting oil on their head at a meal and things like that. That was sometimes customary as a as a honoring gesture. But this must have just been. What in the world is going on here? Mark in his gospel describes the value of the oil as equivalent to an entire year's worth of wages. A whole year. Now, the important thing to understand here, though, is that although this woman's act probably, it did include an implication of her, she probably recognized kind of that Jesus was the Messiah, but really much more is that this was an expression of her absolute love for him. She was doing this because she loved Jesus. And that's number four here. And pouring out this costly oil onto his head she was, in a sense, pouring out her heart. Okay, she was pouring out her heart. It was a heart that was filled with genuine love and gratitude and devotion. You see, she was simply acting upon what she believed to be true about Jesus. He, I think he's the Messiah. He's changed my life. And to her, that meant surrendering to him what was truly valuable to her. She's thinking, what can I give to him? How can I show my love? How can I show my gratitude to Jesus? I just don't know. I don't, who am I? And sometimes we think that, right? Who am I? Who am I to be used by God? Or who am I to show God how great he is when all these other people are doing these amazing things? Who am I? So she takes what she's got. She's got a year's worth of wages in a bottle. And she decides, I am going to do something special to Jesus. Yeah, notice the disciples' response on this, this lavish act that happens. <laughs> What's there? They're, you know, just as they had, you know, remember just how they had disapproved of when people, the children were coming to Jesus, and they were like, hey, 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 wait, 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 wait. Jesus has got better things to do than mess with these kids. 
No, Jesus says, hey, 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 don't worry about it. Let them come to me. Well, just the same way. Look at what happens again. The disciples are the same way. They're in, it says they're indignant or they're annoyed by what this woman has done. You know, to them, this made absolutely no sense. What are you doing? First of all, we're eating here. Hello. And then now this oil and that was expensive. I mean, they even bring it up, don't they? They even say that this oil could be sold to meet the needs of the poor, which was true. Because remember, Jesus had been telling them about the importance of making the, the priority to meet the needs of the poor. Remember, we've seen that. That Jesus, this is a huge priority of Jesus. Do that. So that's what they're thinking. Whoa, wait a second. This is what needs to be done. Yet we see now, we're going to see that Jesus had a different perspective than his disciples on what this woman did. Look what, look, what they, look what he says in verses 10 to 13. He says, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For he is, she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of here. Okay, so we see here that to the disciples, this was wasteful. Well, a terrible idea. Why are you doing that? But to Jesus, what does he say it was? It was a beautiful gesture to him. Just a beautiful thing that she did. I mean, he's not, ta- now he's not taking away from how important it is to take care of the poor. Okay. He's not doing that, but he's emphasizing the opportunity to extravagantly and wildly show love and affection and devotion for him. Okay. At a moment. And at that moment, that takes priority over doing ministry. I think we forget that a lot. I know I do as a paid professional in ministry. It's easy to see, oh, I need to do these things. Or we even see ourselves going, I need to do these certain things. But there's something missing inside. What's going on inside? We forget about loving Christ. And oftentimes we forget about loving the very people that we serve. Isn't it easy? I don't know about you, but isn't it easy to get excited about ministry more than it is the people that you're doing ministry to and for? That can happen. It can easily happen. You get caught up in the, this is exciting. This thing I'm doing or this thing that we're doing is so good. It's so wonderful. But we forget the individual people that are involved in, in that. Same thing happens when we do ministry for the, in the name of Jesus but our walk with Jesus, we don't have much of a relationship with him. You know what they call that? Philanthropy. Which is a great thing. It's a great thing. But as followers of Jesus, we are here to do things that have an eternal impact. And things that have an eternal impact on us and on whoever else and on the kingdom of God is going to first and foremost start with a heart that loves Jesus. And everything in this world is going to try to distract us from that. Everything will do that. So the disciples, hey, what do you think you're doing? That doesn't fit. That, that's, not on the, that's not on the ministry list. That's not, <laughs> no. 
They are indignant. Did she understand that she was probably somehow symbolically anointing Jesus for his upcoming burial, like he says? Probably not. She probably didn't know that. Like I said, once again, she was acting on what she thought was right. Have you ever done that? You ever thought, okay, I'm feeling so full of gratitude for Christ. So gratitude, so much gratitude for what he's done for me. I need to do something. But there's always going to be a voice whispering in our ear, nah, not now. You don't have, t- don't have time. Or, ooh, that's just too messy. All the time that happens to us. But this woman shows us, she just said, i got to do. <laughs> My gratitude, I've got to do something. And that's number five. Yet in saying how important it is that this woman's lavish show of love for him be remembered wherever the gospels proclaim, this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is highlighting the importance and the centrality his suffering and death plays in the message of the gospel. He's taking what this woman has done for him, her focus on him, her love, her appreciation, her act of, I have to show. And what he's saying is, this is highlighting. And he so wonderfully points it to the most important thing that we can remember, the heart of the gospel. You see, the heart of the gospel, we talk about this a lot, don't we? We say, oh, remember the gospel or the gospel. What's the gospel? What really is the gospel? I mean, the gospel, we know it means good news, but the gospel is the good news that is in his suffering and in his death. Okay, it's about that. The good news is the suffering and death of Jesus. He took our place. He took our place by taking the punishment that we deserved for our sin on himself. He took it. I'll take it. That's what I'll do. He became, which fits well with this, with the whole Passover, he became our Passover lamb so that we could be forgiven and have a relationship with the creator of the universe. This is amazing. This is what this woman will always be remembered for, reminding the world of. How would you like to have that on your epitaph? How would you like to have that be the thing that you are remembered for. You, I, I couldn't imagine. Can you imagine knowing that you're going to be remembered for the fact that when anybody thinks of you, anybody reads about you, hears about you, what that takes them to right is the death of Jesus, the heart of the gospel. There's nothing better. There could be nothing better for a follower of Jesus to have that. And it all happens because how she lived out and she showed her devotion to Jesus. But here's the deal. In order for this whole gospel message, this, this what Jesus did taking our place, in order for this to happen, something sinister had to take place. Look at verses 14 to 16. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief's priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So here we got the chief priests and the elders. They get this. Here's, the, here's that, this unexpected opportunity that comes up that allows their timing of their plan to actually take place much sooner. They're thinking, oh, we don't have to wait. What a gift. 
look at what happened. Look at what happens. Now, we, we really don't know why Judas did this. We don't know. I mean, really, the why Judas decided to betray Jesus is really a, a widely debated you know, topic that's out there and a lot of speculation. Yet, yet, whatever the reason, I like what one commentator I wrote, read about this this week. He says this, and it's, I'll put it up there. It says, it seems that his close association with Jesus and his paradoxical values had led Judas to the conclusion that this was not the sort of movement he had signed up for. Far from being the deliverer he had hoped for, Jesus now seems determined to pursue a course inevitably destined to end in failure and defeat. For whatever reason, Judas had concluded that it was in his best interest to disassociate himself from Jesus before it was too late. And like I said, the chief priests and the elders could not be happier. They had a man on the inside Okay, they had someone on the inside who could alert them, could tell them, okay, Jesus is far away from people. Don't worry, the crowds aren't anywhere nearby, so they can not have to worry about this commotion that they were so worried about causing. We got an inside guy. And as we're going to see, the Garden of Gethsemane will prove to be a perfect location for that to happen. We're going to be looking at that later. You see, Judas, number six here on your notes, Judas is a perfect picture of the opposite attitude towards Jesus than that of the woman who anointed him with oil. Where she showed love, gratitude, and devotion, Judas, despite being intimately acquainted with Jesus for three years, showed none of these. Jesus, Judas had seen it all. Heard all the teaching, watched all the miracles, seen the compassion, all that stuff go on. Yet, nope, none of those things he had. Which, just a little side note, that just really kind of reminds me how easily it is to, for us just to assume that just because either we give out information or information is consumed about spiritual things, that it's gone to the heart. That's a big assumption we make. If we can just get this place packed with people and tell them about Jesus, that'll be the answer. That'd be nice. That'd be awesome. It's not the answer. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that. Just the transference of information is no guarantee. That doesn't mean we stop transferring information. But I think it's the only assume. My kids, they should know better. We've talked about this for years. How many of us have seen us that have adult children have seen that it... It happens. I did it. You did it. <laughs> right? So let's just not assume. Let's just not assume um, at all. So these chief, these chief priests are, are pretty excited about this, what's going on here. But uh, Judas, he's just on the other end of things than this woman, where her priority was honoring Jesus. Her priority was to honor Jesus, and it led her to surrender to him what was valuable to her, what was costly for her. Where she did that, Judas's priority was self-preservation. And what did it lead to? Betrayal. It was like, I got to take care of mine. I got to take care of my thing. It is mine. And it led to something no one would ever thought of happening. One of his own inner circle would betray him. Number seven, this is the idea here, that what we truly believe about Jesus will manifest itself in our willingness to surrender to him what is truly valuable to us. Let me say that again. 
what we truly believe about Jesus will manifest itself in our willingness to surrender to him what is truly valuable to us. I think a great backing up, backing this up. Remember when Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10? We looked at this. He said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Wow, that is radical. That is so, so radical. That he needs to be priority one. His way, his will, his desires are priority one because he loves us and knows what's best for us. And the last one, the number eight, bearing or taking up our cross symbolizes our willingness to die to what we feel that we need and deserve in order to find true fulfillment. And in turn, putting Jesus and his agenda first in order that we can experience the abundant life that he promises. That's what taking up our cross, bearing our cross means. Willingness to die. And the beauty, this isn't a sadomasochistic thing. I'm dying to myself so that I can receive what God has for me, what Christ wants to do in me. Let me ask you, what is valuable This is where we're going to take a little turn here a little bit. What is valuable to you that the Lord might, he might be asking you to surrender to him? What might it be? What might something that's really important, really valuable to you, that he might be asking you to surrender to him in order that you would experience the abundant life that he promises? Is it your family? Your dreams? Your hopes? Your career, your reputation, your comfort, as I say those things back to myself, what is it that you so value? I believe that as followers of Jesus, we need to, we, me included, need to be regularly asking the Lord to show us if there is anything that we value that we are holding on to that he may be asking us to surrender to him in order to experience that freedom and that abundant life. Is there something that we're holding on to that can't get out of that trap? And he's just saying, let go. Because you let go, it'll be okay. Not only will it be okay, it will be amazing. Amazing. Well, here's where I want to transition a little bit. This is a little new. But I want to ask a couple questions. And like I say, you don't have to answer. Just sit where you're at. Tell me what you think. Um, And I'm just going to throw a few questions out here. That'd be good. I kind of like the idea of just trying to, let's talk a little bit about what we just talked about. So let me ask you this question. What is it that is so difficult that we, I'm saying it again. What is it is so difficult to surrender? Why? I'm sorry. Let me get on track here. Why is it so difficult to surrender what is valuable to us to the Lord, even when we know that we, it may be keeping us from experiencing all that he has for us? What is it, what is it that does that? What, what do you think? What do you think? Why do we do it? Why is it so difficult? Why is it hard to just go, oh, okay. 
when we know that letting go of that very thing will bring us freedom. Why? What do you think? What do you guys, just any thoughts? There's no right answer here, but why is it so difficult to do that? Louder? Lack of trust. trust. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a big one. It's really hard to break habits. Yeah. Pride. Pride? Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And that, yeah, and that fits big time in the tech world, but in any, in any of our worlds, you know, it's, I'm going to let them know who I am. You're, you're, will, you're willing to say, I'm going to let you take all those preconceived ideas you have and have them. That's hard. Yeah. Why else? What do you think? That's what I wrote down. <laughs> control. I know that's my thing. I want to control. I want to control how, what people think about me. I want to control the image that I portray out there, right? We can all relate to that. Anything else? Yes. The dearest idol of my heart, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from my heart and worship only thee. Wow. Now, is that a is that is that a Joe Gross original or is that <laughs> a great hymn? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great prayer, isn't it? That would be a fantastic prayer to have on a three-by-five card from a lot of us maybe turning it into the modern language and have it right there. That would be fantastic. Yeah, great reminder in the morning. Anything else on that one? You're doing great, by the way. Love it. Has any, let me ask you another question. Has anyone ever experienced surrendering what is valuable to the Lord and then we can recall how the Lord worked in your life? You ever seen that before? Can anybody think of a time where you had something you know was valuable, but you said, I know I need to give this over to the Lord, and then God did something in your life? Anybody have any examples of that? Yeah. And the ridiculous joy that comes, yeah, the fruit and the joy and all that that comes, there. yeah, for sure, yeah, good one. Anybody else, can you think of a time when something valuable that you felt like God said, let go, let go, and then you saw him work? Yeah. Oh. Hmm. And, and what did that do? What was that? Because that's so deep. Hmm. Hmm. Ah, Kara, thanks for sharing that. 
And just to see, and just so you know, we see the joy, how the joy of the Lord has been your strength to do that. Yes. Thank you for that example of doing that. That's huge, yeah. George. great. And sometimes it doesn't go that way, but either way, you let go. Yeah, that's so great. And God did his thing. Yeah. Devin. See, I'm sorry, say it. <laughs> Good call. <laughs> example. I know for me, um, it's been a slow process of, of learning how to not try to control my mental health, because I can try to do that when you have a, uh, a mental health issue. You, really, what you do is you become hyper, hyper vigilant about making sure you do everything right, and that's what's going to make you healthy. And I've had to surrender to the fact that, okay, I can only do so much. I'm, going to be, I'm still going to do what I need to do, but what I need to let the Lord just do his thing. Does that make sense? Because it really, it really, I was a prisoner of worry. I was a prisoner of being anxious about my anxiety disorder. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> so yeah, another one. Uh, any, anyone willing to share what you believe the Lord might be asking you to surrender to him in order to fully experience an abundant life? Now, this, is a, this is a little deeper one. I would expect anybody to answer, but if someone would like to, is there anything after hearing all this that you may be thinking, well, maybe maybe God is, this might be one, and I would love my church family to pray for me on this. I would love that. Is anybody, any, anybody willing to share that? Go for it. so good for you. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Sue. Thanks for sharing. I'll, I'll share mine. My thing is um, I've come to realize that um, it really has to do with how um, I am as a pastor. Uh, I think for me, it's easy to uh, make sure that I'm good and efficient and I'm competent at what I do. And I, that's a good thing. That's a right thing. But to not let that override my love for you. Ah. 
not really a confession, but it, it really is something that the Lord has really put on my heart that I can be as good of a pastor as, as I could possibly try to be and feel like he's empowering me to be. <clears throat> but if I don't truly love you, I need to leave. <laughs> I want to love you. Oh, that's, that's something I'm trying to let go of and letting myself be who he wants me to be and not get in the way because that can get in the way. Proficiency can get in the way of our heart. And I don't want that. Okay, unless anybody's got anything else. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you. Thank you so much that you make such large demands on us, but these are really nothing compared to what the return is of your goodness, your presence, your mercy, and your grace. I thank you how you've been working in so many of our lives and are continuing to do that. I pray that for those of us in this room that really feel like there might be things that we are sensing that you want us to let go of that are important and we value, but they're not allowing us to experience you fully. God, I pray that you would speak to the folks here. I pray that you would give us courage that can only come from you. I pray, God, for uh, Sue and her her desire to allow herself to give up control. Pray that you would bless that ministry, that people would step forward, that people would use their gifts, that your Holy Spirit would work in them in ways that could, they never even imagined. We pray that for all of us, God, that your Spirit would work in our lives in ways that we just never could imagine as we continue to give ourselves to you and take up our cross. In Christ's name, amen.